We are told that Jesus has triumphed over sin, over Satan, over death. And has brought in the new creation. It is now in existence through his death and resurrection. That's what we've been singing about. So that the church, God's holy temple, Ephesians chapter 2, is the new humanity that foreshadows that perfect society, the utopia that God is bringing about. So that when we think of Crestwick as no place, we can think of Crestwick as utopia. That sounds strange because we are not perfect. But we are utopia in the already not yet sense thereof. You see, chapter 5 tells us that Christ is cleansing us through the work of the Spirit, applying His Word to us, so that He may present us to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So as a church in the already, not yet, our purpose is to be an already, not yet, utopia. A showcase before the heavenly hosts, according to chapter 3, verse 10, of God's triumph in Christ. We are God's, an outpost of God's kingdom. Or, for those of you who like movies, we are God's movie trailer, portraying the already, not yet, of God's new creation. And in the here and now, we demonstrate the victory of God in Jesus Christ by our unity in diversity. Look around you. Look at the diversity of this congregation that drew me to you. And we demonstrate the victory of God in Christ by a distinctive manner of life patterned after the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And where we are now in the household code gives tangible expression to that distinctive way of life. As we walk wisely as spirit-filled children of light, chapter 5, verse 1 to 18, we portray the beauty of relationships guided and motivated by the love of Christ. So now, we come to perhaps the most thorny section of the household code. We've moved from the intimacy of marriage to parent-child relationships now to master-slave relations. And Paul, by this household code, shows us that salvation encompasses every single aspect of life, both private and public. So let us read the text. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ 
not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Now, at first blush, when Paul says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling as you would Christ, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, sounds as if Paul is okay with slavery. He's not. Please recognize that slavery in the first century was a very different from the race-based slavery practiced in the 17th to 19th century that we think of when we hear the word slavery. According to Clinton Arnold, first of all, racial factors played no role. Whereas slavery in America in the 17th through the 19th century, centuries principally involved the acquisition of black African slaves forcibly taken from their homeland, Roman slaves were of virtually every race of people in the Mediterranean region and involved people from every country. And I would add that some people actually sold themselves into slavery for a time so that they could get out of debt. 
You see, number two, many slaves could reasonably expect to be emancipated during their lifetime. By contrast, slaves in the new world had no hope for manumission, manumission meaning release, and freedom. Three, many slaves worked in a variety of specialized and responsible positions. African slaves, by contrast, were seldom entrusted with responsible positions, nor did they have the training for any skilled jobs. Four, many slaves received education and training in specialist skills. In fact, some scholars have suggested that Luke, Dr. Luke, who wrote Luke and Acts, being a doctor, might have been a slave. We don't know. Few opportunities were provided to slaves in the New World to receive general education in skill or skill development training, yet this was a common practice of slave owners in the Roman world. Five, freed slaves often became Roman citizens and developed a client relationship to their former masters. So the point Clinton Arnold makes is that the slavery in the first century was a very different thing from what we think of as slavery today. Nonetheless, you would say slavery of any form is wrong, and we agree. In fact, the reason why we know that to be wrong is that the Bible tells us so. The biblical account of what a human being is as a creature made in the image of God makes owning another image bearer of God intolerable and unacceptable. In fact, Paul's words in this passage and in Colossians and in Philemon lay the theological groundwork that would eventually lead to the abolition of slavery in England and in the United States eventually. Timothy Gombis points out that by addressing the slaves directly and I quoted this before, so I'm just going to summarize it. Paul is giving slaves unprecedented dignity as full and equal participants in the church, in the people of God. So that Paul, in addressing slaves, is telling us that belonging to Christ radically transforms a person's status. For children... Or to be seen and not heard in Roman culture, Paul addresses children as responsible moral agents. Where slaves were to be instructed by their masters and not addressed directly, Paul says, no, 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 no. I will address slaves directly as responsible moral agents. Paul is challenging societal notions of worth. You see, in Roman culture, Worth was ascribed to people based on social standing, based on their proximity to Caesar. Paul shows us that our worth is founded in Jesus Christ, who valued us enough to lay down his life for us. He redeemed us, so we are his bond servants. And that's the underlying notion behind Paul's command 
for slaves to obey and respect their earthly masters. They are not just serving those earthly masters. They are serving Christ. That's why he calls them your earthly masters. They are not ultimate. You serve as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. In serving their masters, they were actually serving the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So they could not be lazy servants who work only when they're being watched, not with eye service, as men pleasers. Rather, they need to serve wholeheartedly because salvation means they serve King Jesus as they obey their master. Christ. It's the audience of one who guarantees that their good work will be rewarded, according to verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And you notice that Paul is actually subverting the social order while he commands obedience. Because he asserts that both masters and slaves are equal in God's sight. Notice Masters, do, not, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. See that last phrase? There is no partiality with him. Master or slave, you stand equal at the foot of the cross. Masters and slaves both belong to God, their heavenly master who holds both accountable. And so masters, slave owners, were to treat their slaves properly. You see, when Paul says masters do the same to them, it's not simply saying stop threatening them or stop mistreating them. Again, Clinton Arnold says that it is probably best to see Paul commending the various virtuous attitudes he has exhorted the Christian slaves to display as having equal applicability to the lives of believing slave owners. This would include having a positive attitude and goodwill toward their slaves, wholeheartedly committing themselves to do the will of God, and living under the recognition that they too are slaves of an ultimate master the Lord Jesus Christ. They're equal. They both belong to the king. In our day, none of us are slaves. At least I hope not. But we are still privileged to be the bond servants of King Jesus. That is our title. That is our status. That is our worth. We belong to Christ. So in our work, we are serving the purposes of God. We are agents of Christ, caring for the world and foreshadowing the new creation as his people who are being made new. So think of your job right now, where you work. However hard and frustrating it is, 
God has put you in that place as an agent of the new creation to serve him, to honor him. And those of you who are in positions of authority, and I realized as I was preparing this, I actually am in a position of authority because I'm managing the staff at the church. And we need to recognize that we are accountable to God to serve him by using the power that we have in our workplaces to seek the flourishing of those under our leadership. So if Jessica or Chris or Steph complain about me, I'm not doing this right. I need to be leading so that they can flourish as people. And our motivation is the same motivation that the Apostle Paul gives us. Jesus guarantees our reward as we serve him through our work. And I love what Tim Keller says in this regard. Jesus is the only boss who will not drive you into the ground. The only audience that does not need your best performance in order to be satisfied with you. Why is this? Because his work for you is finished. That's our hope, and that's our confidence. As we show the triumph of God in Christ in our workplaces, as we work not for the paycheck, not for the promotion, not for the recognition, not even for the results, but for the pleasure of him who put us where we are. That's how we demonstrate the triumph of God in Christ. And if you've ever wondered, why is it so hard to do this on a consistent basis? It's not just because we live in a fallen world. It is also because demonstrating the triumph of God in Christ puts us in opposition to Satan. Satan doesn't like it. And that's why Paul moves on to talk about spiritual warfare. Paul is not introducing a new subject. He's actually highlighting the underlying reality that is taking place as we walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Chapter 4, verse 1. What we often don't realize is that we've always been engaged in spiritual warfare, even before we became believers. Salvation simply means that we have changed sides. In chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 4, from being children of wrath in opposition to God, we are now, because of God's saving grace, children of God, members of God's household, citizens of heaven, in other words, citizen soldiers resisting Satan. And that's why Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We need the strength that comes from God alone in order to be able to stand firm against Satan. God wants us to live in total dependence on him out of our union with Christ. 
The problem is, we would rather rely on ourselves and our resources instead of depending on God because we want to live on our own terms. But if we are Christ's bond servants, then we are not our own. In the words of the Catechism, we belong to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we need to live on His terms as daily recipients of His power and His grace. Now, it's not just our arrogant desire to assert ourselves that gets in the way. Um, I have to confess, my background is in chemistry. So to talk about spiritual warfare sounds to me like supernatural superstition. But the gospel speak of Jesus as interacting with Satan and evil spirits as personal beings. They are real. But please do not try to create a demonic organizational chart based on Paul's words here in Ephesians 6. When he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, he is not making a theology of demonic hierarchies. Please. Paul is piling on terms for rhetorical effect in order to help us understand that we are fighting against an invisible foe that is organized, motivated, smarter than you and me, and more powerful than we are. And we are not simply launching drone strikes. We are wrestling against spiritual forces of wickedness. And wrestling, in the Greco-Roman context, implies hand-to-hand combat. Paul is saying, the battle is real, the battle is day by day. That being said, Paul doesn't want us to be afraid of Satan and of evil spirits. Because the fundamental reality is that Christ has already triumphed by his death and resurrection. Look at chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Paul prays that we would know the mighty power of God, that he worked, verse 20, in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And don't miss this. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Christ has triumphed. We don't need to be afraid. Our foe is defeated. And the victory of Christ will be consummated when he returns. In the here and now, we wage war against Satan and his minions. Because Satan may be defeated, but he's not waving the white flag of surrender. Just as when the Allies stormed the beaches of Normandy, Hitler didn't say, oh my goodness, you've breached Europe. I give up. 
No. The worst fighting of World War II happened after the storming of Normandy. And it was not a year until a year later that the Allied forces rolled into Paris and declared victory. It's the same reality we live in today. And that war with Satan and his minions calls us to active, absolute dependence. Because our utopia is under attack. But Paul is very clear, and don't miss this. Our enemy is the spiritual forces of evil, not people. It is not the culture. It is not the government. It is spiritual forces of evil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. In fact, we need to recognize we are fighting for people. God has put us here in Guelph to fight for the souls of men. And please understand, we are not told by Paul to rebuke, bind, cast out, or stomp Satan. That's not your job. That's not my job. We are also not commanded to take over society. We don't even have to worry about winning. Jesus is the divine warrior who fights for us. That was very clear. Isaiah 11 and 12. It is a, it is a description of God, the divine warrior, so that we could say, God is my strength and my song. He is my salvation. He's the one who fights, and he's already won. What are we going to do? Well, look at what Paul says. Verse 14. Stand, therefore. Not twiddle your thumbs. To stand is to be faithful to our calling to live wisely for the pleasure of God by the power he provides. Sounds so weak. It sounds so mundane. But if you've been paying attention to the book of Ephesians, that's precisely how we resist Satan. Do you not realize that your very presence here in worship is an act of resistance against Satan? We wage warfare by maintaining the unity of the church, by contributing to the growth of the body, by speaking the truth in love, chapter 4. We wage warfare by living out the, new, the life of the new creation in community so that our lives of moral purity and relational wholeness shine as a light that confronts the darkness. That's chapter 5. We wage warfare by bearing witness to the triumph of God in Christ that is transforming sinners like you and me who would rather fight with one another to become peacemakers who look like Jesus. And we don't stand by ourselves. A friend of mine, Ken Davis, has this wonderful image. 
He says, imagine gathering all of the technology for warfare that we have here in North America and appointing our best fighter and telling him, hey, we're going to equip you with everything we have in our arsenal. We're going to wake you War Machine, Iron Man, and Captain America all in one. And we're going to send you to Ukraine. You fight the Russians all by yourself. How's that going to work? He'll take a lot of people down, but he probably will be destroyed eventually, right? Unfortunately, that's how we look at spiritual warfare. We think of it individualistically. But the commands here are given to the whole church. All of these are plurals. We stand firm as a community of faith. That's why later on in verse 19 onwards, Paul asks for prayer and sends Tychicus to the church to encourage them. Verse 22. We as a church are an outpost of the kingdom of God which has invaded this present evil age. We stand by becoming more like Jesus as a church. In fact, that's the point behind the metaphor, take up the whole armor of God. Paul wants us to be on wartime footing, alert and ready for Satan's attacks. In verse 13, when he says that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, is envisioning moments in the life of the church and in individuals' lives when Satan's attacks will come. I remember a couple of years ago, before COVID, the church I was pastoring was planning this major outreach. We were going to bring people to watch Handel's Messiah. And we were going to talk about Handel's Messiah over dinner. Because Handel's Messiah presents the gospel. And people pay to watch it. So we thought, hey, let's leverage this. But I kid you not. The whole week before we did that event, we were under Satan's attack. And you know how he attacked? Through relationships. The Sunday before, I had a blow up with one of my friends. And I wasn't the only one. Couples were fighting big time. And all throughout that week, it was just a relational mess. Then afterwards, I realized, oh, no wonder. We were getting ready to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. No wonder. We were under attack. That's a reality. We need to put on the whole armor of God. And what does that mean? Well, functionally, it is equivalent to putting on what what chapter 424 says. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, Clinton Arnold. I should be paying him a royalty for this. But I did buy his commentary, so it's okay. (laughs) 
knowing the truth of who we are in union with Christ, cultivating the virtues of this new identity, and using the resources available through this new relationship are at the heart of what it means to put on the armor of God. So we wear the truth like a belt. Verse 14, as we understand the truth of the gospel more deeply and live out the implications of the gospel daily, especially in our relationships. Righteousness is our breastplate as we reflect the righteous character of God because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us. We act out that status. We don't tolerate sin in our lives because that allows cracks that Satan could exploit. Paul alludes to Isaiah 52, 7, where it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Because having the feet shod with the gospel means we need to be ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. See, standing firm isn't twiddling your thumbs. It involves both defense and offense. And the paradox is wonderful. We wage war by proclaiming the gospel of peace. And we take the shield of faith at all times because we fend off Satan's attacks by relying on the promises of God and relying on God for all things. We live in active dependence on him. That's the shield of faith that fends off the attacks of Satan. And salvation is a helmet that protects us as we live in light of our status as God's children and in light of this wonderful reality that Jesus has already triumphed. I don't need to give in to sin The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. More specifically, it is the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done. And as we wield the sword of the Spirit, let us also understand that we need to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Brethren, the medium is the message. We must proclaim the gospel with the winsome compassion and gentleness of Jesus. That's the whole point of chapter 4, verse 31, to chapter 5, verse 2. We put on the character of Jesus by pointing to him with our lips and our lives. We wage warfare by proclaiming the person and work of Jesus, depending upon his spirit for wisdom, for boldness, for strength. That's why we're here. We proclaim the gospel. That's why I love what Snips is doing. We are adorning the gospel by showing generosity and kindness to people in need. Now, depending on the Spirit, Paul says, means that we absolutely need to pray. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Prayer is the foundation of our spiritual warfare. You can have all of those things 
You can have a deep understanding of the gospel, but if you're not praying, you're done. We can't fight on our own. We are only strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So we need to pray for one another consistently. That's how we stay alert and ready for battle. So that you might say, how do you stand? You stand by getting on your knees. in Prayer. And Paul himself exemplifies this humble recognition of his need for God's empowering. He describes himself as having the honor of being God's ambassador in verse 20. While being in chains, while bearing the shame of imprisonment. So mindful of his status, he asks the Ephesian church to pray. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So here's the deal. If Paul, with all of his experience, with his brilliant IQ, with his double PhD training, with his rhetorical excellence, needed prayer. Where does that leave you and me? How do we wage warfare? By being in constant communication with our divine warrior who fights for us knowing that we need his strength to be faithful every moment of the day. We wage warfare by proclaiming the gospel and embodying the gospel, proclaiming the victory of Jesus. So as we close off this study of Ephesians, my prayer is that more and more we would be a foreshadowing of the utopia that God is bringing about. I took us through Ephesians so that we may understand our identity. What is our identity? We are God's showcase of his triumph in Christ on this side of Guelph. And we are able to do this, not because we are strong or great or wonderful. We do this because God has graciously redeemed us and continues to love him with love incorruptible. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace that has called us to yourself, that has taken sinners like us, rebels against your grace, and that has restored us to yourself, and that you have called us your children. You have made us citizens of heaven. You have given us the privilege of being the place where you show your glory on this earth by demonstrating your transforming power in our lives as we love one another and as we reach out with the gospel to people around us. Father, we, we thank you 
that in the midst of this warfare, we know that we need not be afraid because you are the one who fights for us and you have given us the armor that we need in order to stand firm. Oh Lord, help us constantly rely on you, to constantly preach the gospel to one another, to say with, to one another, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible, so that we may glorify you in this place and wherever you've put us. This we ask in Christ's name and for his sake.